We're going to be wrestling with a difficult section of scripture today, and what I'm, and this, this actually, this whole chapters 9 through 11 is super difficult and challenging, and what I, again, would ask you to do is just kind of keep in mind what Paul has been doing throughout the entire book of Romans, okay, because we don't want to forget the context, right? We don't want to forget what Paul has been doing in terms of talking about righteousness by faith. And so here's a couple things that I want you to think about, or one thing that I want you to think about um, as we enter into this section, because it starts off with a pretty offensive analogy. And I remember being part of a youth with a mission. Um, if they do, we did um, pantomime skits. And there was a pantomime skit, and I can't exactly remember. I need some help jogging my memory, because it's been maybe 20 years since I was a part of it. Um, as I think it was called the Puppet Master. There was a pantomime skit called The Puppet Master, and what happens is you have this person dressed in white, and he or she would be standing kind of like this, and then there's like a row of chairs um, behind the, well, at least one chair behind that person dressed in white, and there'd be a person dressed in black who would be standing in the chair behind them, like standing above, um, and then whatever that person dressed in black would do, um, the person in white would imitate. And the idea was that Satan, or his demons, or his minions, were like a puppet master uh, controlling all the movements of the person. Some of you are, someone's smiling here, so has someone, anyone seen this skit? Has anyone, does anyone know what I'm talking about? Oh, thank you, okay. Um, so, but the idea was, is like there's something, some force outside of our control is exerting influence on us to the point that it's causing us to make whatever decision we make, whatever our behavior, it is being controlled on a minute level. And the premise of this passage today is that not only is that true, I mean, not only could that possibly be true for Satan and his minions, but what if that is true about God himself? What if God is the puppet master, right? That's what we're dealing with today as we come into this difficult section of scripture. What if God is the puppet master? And as I talked about last week, and I love the questions that came out during the open mic sharing, and again, I want to open it up to other questions as well. And if I don't get to fully, and I won't be able to, if I don't get to fully address that question, we will have a Q&A time, not, not today, because we have the elder candidate town hall, um, but next week, we'll have a special time afterwards where we can, you can come up and we can talk more about some of the questions, because like I said, this is a very limited chunk of time that I can address questions. And even today, I won't be able to do a lot of the Old Testament references that occur in this passage. But I love that Grant um, gave us some of those, um, gave us the context for Isaiah. Okay, so what I'm going to do is we're in the middle of chapter 9, and I'm going to read that section. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me or your scripture journals. It's also going to be on the screen, and I'm going to be reading beginning in um, chapter 9, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? That's God speaking. For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, 
but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. That's the quotation that uh, Grant showed us from Isaiah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if, as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." Okay, that's our scripture reading. And what I'd like to do is give us, again, what I said is let's get some context for what's going on in the book of Romans, right? So I'm going to give you an outline. I think I have it. On, I think we'll have it on the screen. Do we have an outline of the perfect? Oh, that looks so good. I have not even seen that. That looks so good. Okay, so um, in, the, uh, in Romans 1, thank you, Christy, for doing that. Um, in, the, in Romans 1, you have number one, uh, the first 17 verses. You have the power of the gospel. And then in the second half through the end of chapter 3, you have this idea that no one is righteous. Everyone is screwed up. Everyone's broken. Everyone's flawed. We don't, we don't even live according to the rules we set up in our own conscience, right? So you have the Jews who didn't live up to the law that God gave them through Moses. They did not live up to the Ten Commandments. But even Gentiles who are non-Jewish don't live up to the rules of their own conscience and what we, we believe ourselves. And then you have in 321, what God says is a righteousness has been revealed, Okay, a righteousness that is by faith. And this is opposed to by works, which is about behavior. And that is the, the, the biggest theme in the book of Romans that you want to keep in mind coming into chapter 9. And this righteousness by faith is not just a costume that you wear where you look good before God, which is true. You, you can put on, there's this idea of you can put on the righteousness of Christ, but it's more than a costume. It actually is the ability to live right with God. You have the Spirit empowering you inside of you to live as a new creation, and you're no longer a slave to sin. You're no longer a puppet, but you can live for God, right? And, and Paul even says, I'm using this slave analogy as if it's like a puppet analogy, but it's only because it's limited. So recognize that you actually have a power to live, not as a puppet, but because you are compelled by the Spirit of God living in you to recover the image of God in you. And then um, in chapter 8, you have the, some discussion about suffering and future righteousness, that what you have right now today um, is pales in comparison to what God is going to do in the future in coming back and resurrecting us fully. So we're going to get full new bodies, and we're going to have a new heavens and earth, and that is going to be glorious. That revealed worth is going to be incredible. And now we're in Romans 9, these uh, 9, 10, and 11, where what Paul is doing is he's showing how God is righteous in rejecting the Jews. He's defending God's character. 
And then 12 through 16, which we'll spend the rest of the year in, is about righteous living. What, is the, what does behavior look like when you have righteousness by faith? Because there are implications in the way that we live. And so to review what happened in Romans 9, number one, you have that natural privilege does not guarantee redemption or salvation. And what I talked about natural privilege, last week we talked about legacies and this idea that if, you go, uh, if parents go to a college, does that automatically mean the children get into the same college, right? And that same idea is also true, or the question is whether that same idea is true for the Jews. If you're a biological descendant of Abraham, does that mean you're automatically saved? And the answer is unequivocally no, no. Natural privilege does mean something. It's valuable for something, but it does not guarantee your salvation. God can choose who he wants to choose. The second idea that's in chapter 9 is this, that God chooses, and then when he does, he precedes that choice with either a promise or something that he does. And so the way that you respond to God choosing you, I mean, every time you respond to, when, when you become a believer, you respond to God. You respond to what God has acted upon. So being a Christian is responsive. It's responsive. You respond to a promise. Ray Steadman says it this way, redemption always has at the heart of it a promise that God has given and that we are to respond to. Okay, redemption starts with a promise that God gives, and we respond to that promise. So you can think of this section almost like an extended version of Romans 4, which Paul is talking about. It's all about the circumcision by faith, not in the flesh. All right, the third one, that God's choice is never based on behavior. You see in verse 11 of chapter 9, talking about Jacob and Esau, that they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. It is not about what you do. Christianity is not about what you do. It's about faith and not works. And that theme is going to continue into this section. Okay, and so let's look at verse 19. So first, verse 19 starts out with, um, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Up to this point, this is kind of the classic question. And last week, Darius asked the question during our open mic sharing, is you know, how, did, how do you deal with this passage with someone who's not a Christian? Are they just doomed to destruction because God has chosen them for that? And I would say this is not just a problem for non-Christians. This is a problem for all of us. This is a pro- if God chooses, then we've got to figure out, wait, what, what is the role of our will in anything? Does anything we do matter? And so I would just want to point out that this is a super important question. This passage can, can confirm what all skeptics believe about God, that all evil exists and it's God's fault and not ours. Because that's what he's saying is like, why does, how can God find fault with us if he's the one who's doing all the choosing? Then it must be God's fault. And this has been a suspicion for centuries, that God uses men to do evil and then blames them for doing evil. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give four reasons that Paul, expl- four ways in which Paul explains how this can be true. How this, it's not about God finding fault, but we do have personal responsibility, and yet he ultimately does have choice. Okay, so what does that argument start with? In verse 20, it says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Okay, how come the clay can't fight back? And so the first reason, what I'm going to say, is what are the clay's credentials? Okay, if you're the clay, what are your credentials to decide what to do with yourself? Because the reality is we are super finite, we are weak, we're severely limited in knowledge, we barely even today 
understand how our own minds work. Like, I think last week I mentioned Micah studying at Berkeley and he's in cognitive science and we're still learning so much about how neuroscience operates. And I know some of you work in artificial intelligence and like, we are barely scratching the surface in, in, in terms of how we understand the mind to work. And so the question is, how can we understand the mind of God when we can barely understand our, our own? Okay, what are man's credentials? And we kind of explored this idea also in the book of Job, where Job is encountering suffering, suffering that he has no idea what the cause of, and we, as the reader, know what happens, what, the reason why he's suffering, but, no, but he doesn't understand himself. And he's asking God all these different questions, and he says, you know what, I just want to go mano a mano with you, God. I just want to talk to you and, and level with you about what's happening. And finally, at the end, God does confront him, but God doesn't answer any of his questions. Instead, God just asks a bunch of questions. And essentially, what God asks them is, what are your credentials, Job? What do you know about this? What do you know about that? What do you know about whales? What do you know about the way of the world? What do you understand about any of these things? And of course, Job is left speechless because he doesn't. And so the first reasoning that God gives in verse 19 is what are our credentials to be able to speak back to the creator? Because the assumption is that we have been created and there is a creator. And if there is a creator, he has the ability to know what is good for his creation. Now let's go to verse, okay, and, and by the way, verse 20 also comes from Isaiah 45, 9. And I'm not going to give all the references. I'll give that one. But I just want you to know, you don't actually have to read all the Old Testament references to understand what Paul is saying. All you need is to read what Paul is writing here to understand what's going on. Just know that at that time, Paul didn't have the Gospels. He, there was no New Testament when Paul was writing this. And so what Paul had to do was show how God had this idea of righteousness by faith from the very beginning of time, from, from the beginning of time and the way that he interacted with Israel. Okay, he's trying to show from the Old Testament that righteousness by faith exists, and that's why he makes this reference, these references. But you don't, have to, you don't have to read them in order to understand what he's doing. Okay, so the first one was, what are the clay's credentials? The second, and this is verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And so the question you're going to have is, in this analogy of potter versus clay, like, What's, what's the same lump? Okay, what does the same lump mean? Well, in the context, when you look at Paul's talking about groups of people, he started this passage talking about how he's grieved over the Jews. He's grieved over his kinsmen, his tribe. So out of the same lump, based on the context of this passage, means out of the same family or tribe or group of people. That's what same lump means. He's talking about flesh, right? So out of the same lump, the same tribe of people, how come you can make one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable so out of the same lump of people, you may have within that group of people those who are chosen or not chosen, those who are honorable versus dishonorable. And so the question is, how can that happen? Well, first of all, I just want to acknowledge that this is super offensive to us. This is super offensive to us, especially as educated Westerners. And the reason that it's offensive is that each person today, we all see ourselves as kind of like a little god. And that there is a huge distrust of institutions. And so even our very constitution of this country was founded on this idea that you cannot trust anyone with absolute power. 
No one can be trusted today with any power. There's all kinds of distrust in every institution, and the church is no exception. In fact, I know a lot of you are here and have shared about hurt that you've experienced at the hands of church leaders. And there are a lot of people who are not here because they have experienced hurt from church leaders and distrust the power that these institutions wield. And even today, as we have our elder candidate town hall, part of the reason we're doing that is to help encourage trust, right? By being transparent and now allowing you to ask questions. But just know that in our culture today, there's a tremendous distrust of institutions and any power over us, because we don't want anyone to have power over us, and we want to feel, experience power and autonomy in ourselves. And so we just need to let, give, her, give yourself a moment to be offended, right? Give yourself, have an offended moment, right, as you're reading this. And so what is the relationship then between the creator and created? The creator has authority over what he's created. He has authority. And what that's called in the Bible is sovereignty, that God is sovereign. And this idea of sovereign means that God is supremely powerful, that he can exercise power in the realm that he's been given. And the the power that he's been given as creator is he gets to decide what he does with his creation. And the way this world is structured is that not only has God made us, but God has made us in his image. So we also have the ability to create. And I think it's interesting that when you look at makers, when you look at the things that humans create, they don't always swear by what they've created. A lot of times, the things we create, we actually want to distance ourselves from. Let me give a couple examples. My brother's a doctor, and I know from, I think there was a Stanford survey um, indicating 88% of physicians would forego aggressive treatment for themselves at the end of life. So what what doctors see is done for patients at the end of their life, they often would not choose to do for themselves because they understand how invasive and painful that treatment can be. And so they recognize that, and they also recognize there's limitations in the healthcare system. I also have a friend who's a public school teacher, and he um, had his, him and his wife homeschooled all their children, right? Because he gets to decide what he does with his kids, and he knows the sausage factory of public school, and he's like, you know what, I want to do something different. Because even, he understands what he's creating. And then we also know that among those who um, are makers in terms of social media, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, or even iPhones, right? We also understand that the creators of these technologies are very careful about how they use them themselves and also how they have their children use them because they recognize in what they've created, there can be problems. And actually, a lot of those problems aren't with the technology themselves. They're with people. The problem is inherently with people. And so God understands this completely. He understands this completely, and he recognizes, you know what? I can do whatever I want because I made you. I have that sovereign power to decide what I want to do if I made something. And we exercise that sovereignty all the time in our own lives with the things that we've created. And no one goes, oh, well, you made that. Why do you, why'd you destroy it? I can. You can because you're the creator. That's the right you get as the creator. So that's the second reason. The first was, what are the clay credentials? Two, the, the potter gets a say over the clay. And then number three. Let me keep reading in verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction 
or in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Okay, so what's that saying? It's saying, it's saying on one hand, God has this remarkable plan to demonstrate his power, and the way his power works is he's got this whole, let's, well, I'll use this uh, image. He's got this batch of people, and this whole batch of people went bad. Okay, it went bad. Okay, and so what he could do from that point is he could get rid of the entire batch and start over, but he wanted to show his power, and so he's committed to this batch, and out of that batch, he wants to save and redeem some of that, some of those people, right? So those, so the whole batch is bad. It's destined for destruction, and then he wants to bear, he wants to bear with them in patience, and then out of that, save some of them. He wants to have mercy, and the way that I've been thinking about it, um, I do do some cooking in our house, so I don't, I don't know how to, the potter and clay metaphor, that's not, I don't know how to relate to that, but I know how to relate somewhat to cooking. Um, in our house, I'm known for a couple um, cooking mishaps, okay? So in that sense, the analogy is going to break down. Um, and so, for instance, um, I was making oyakudon, I think the other, the other day, you guys know oyakudon? You're supposed to add handashi, it's like a Japanese seasoning, or it's like a salty, it's like a salty, Jude, can you help me with this? Yeah, it's a salty seasoning. And um, essentially, the, the, the net of it is I used 10 times the amount um, that I was supposed to use. So in this case, the maker had a problem, right? The, the, the problem was definitely the maker. Um, and, I, and I put um, 10 times the amount of salt that was needed um, for this dish. And so it was borderline inedible. Okay, it was borderline inedible, inedible. And so you can think of it this way, like the dish that God made has been corrupted, maybe not because of God, but it's been corrupted. And God's plan is like, you know what? I could totally start over. And that's really what I should have done. I should have thrown the entire thing out. But God in his plan of redemption, in his power wants to say, you know what? I'm going to rescue some of this. I'm going to rescue some of this out of mercy. That's what I want to do because I want to show my power. And then he gives examples of this in verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, okay, they're corrupt. I will call my people. Right? He's saying this whole batch was bad, but I want to pick some of them out, and they will be loved. They were unloved, but they will be loved. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And that's what mercy is, is you don't have to pick anyone, but that's what God does. He does not give up on us. Um, 27, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And I love that Grant chose that Isaiah 1 passage because he's demonstrating that throughout Isaiah, God is continually making this bid like, Israel, would you please turn back? Would you please stop disobeying? Would you please do justice? Would you please seek out the fatherless? Would you please live according to the commands I've given you? And Israel continually does not do that. And so what Israel deserves is wrath. And wrath is just the consequences of disobedience. That's what wrath is. It's just consequences. That's what Israel deserves. And yet, what Paul is showing is only a remnant of them will be saved. But that's mercy. That is absolutely mercy. Because it says, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Justice is you getting what you deserve. But mercy is, what, is when you get something better than what you deserve. And then in 29, and as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, 
would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And that's a reference to Genesis when these two cities were completely destroyed by God. And that's what Sodom and Gomorrah deserved. And that's what Israel also deserved. But God chose to, to show mercy on them. And I, I want to recognize that up until now, Paul has been definitely talking about groups of people, not individuals. He's been talking about Jews versus Gentiles. But then the question that, you know, I think Darius had and that we all have is, can God also work at the individual level? Of course he can. And of course he does. Of course he works in both individuals and groups. But this idea is the idea that the Bible always assumes is that you have personal responsibility. All of your decisions that you make, it's always assumed that you are responsible for them. And that's actually the way life is structured. Everyday decisions, like you showing up at church today, like you putting oat milk in your coffee, all of those decisions you decided for yourself. You made that decision, and you're responsible for it. And the Bible always assumes that. And yet what Paul is talking about here is taking a step back and going, there's actually some forces working beyond what you can see or understand to shape the course of history, not only in terms of individuals, but also groups of people in which God is wanting to show mercy to one group while at the same time allowing wrath for another. And then he also alternates between the two. And that's what the rest of this section, what chapters 10 and 11 are going to demonstrate to us. And so let me get to the last three verses where Paul finally gives us a discussion for why he's been explaining all of this. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And let's first talk about that stumbling stone idea. Again, Grant also picked a verse from 1 Corinthians that talked about that stumbling stone. Why would God put a stumbling stone in front of, well, really, he's talking about the Jews. Why would he put a stumbling stone in front of the Jews? Because, never forget, because natural privilege doesn't guarantee anything. And because it's God's choice, ultimately, that reigns in our lives. It's not about anything that you do. And so everything we do, the, the, like I said, the essence of being a Christian is to be responsive. If you look at the example of Esau and Jacob, Jacob responds to his mother's plan to steal the blessing. Israel, as a nation, responds to the hundreds of opportunities they have to respond to God. This example also operates in the way that we think about what it means to be a Christian. You know, Jake and I and some others of you have gone out to San Jose State. We go out to San Jose State every Wednesday, and we do random evangelism. That means we have conversations with students about the gospel. And I think about two weeks ago, Jake and I talked to two, two guys who identify as Sikh in their upbringing and their spiritual background. And they were a little sheepish because they said, these two Sikhs, as I asked them about their spiritual background, one was vegetarian, one was not, not vegetarian. And they're like, yeah, that's a big controversy within Sikhism. Um, Sikhs like argue among themselves about what's right or wrong. And I just looked at them and said, yeah, Christians, we do that all the time. We argue about right or wrong among ourselves all the time. So we totally get it. Um, and then, of course, we asked them the question about, um, you know, 
what, how sure are you on a scale of one to 10 if you'd go to heaven, their afterlife? How, soon are, how certain are you that you would be able to have fellowship, permanent fellowship with God? And they were actually very hesitant. And I love their answer because they said, you know what? I just don't think we have devoted ourselves enough to a life of prayer. So they understood that they do not live a perfect life and that before God, before a holy God, that their lives fall far short. So in that sense, they understood, they had a Christian understanding. They had a biblical understanding of evil. And then as I explained the gospel to them, one of them, um, his name is Kerpal. He's, a, he's a, doing a first year in data analytics. And I think he finally, it kind of dawned on him how Christianity is different. And he said, in every other religion, man goes to God. But in Christianity, God goes to man. And I was like, wow, <laughs> yes, you got it. You understand what, Christian, what the gospel is about. In every other religion, and even within Christianity, the Jews were tempted to believe that you get to God by what you do. You get to God by your behavior. You get to God by your natural privilege. You get to God based on following the law. But the gospel is revealed as a righteousness by faith, that ultimately you get to God because you respond to him in faith and not because of what you do, not because of your behavior, not because you're worthy. That is the gospel. God chooses you. And in choosing you, we respond to that choice. So God's election of us is revealed as we choose him. And so the way that you're going to experience this is the Spirit of God is going to work in your heart and you're going to choose him. And that reveals God's choosing of you. I know that sounds like kind of crazy and mysterious, and that's not, not exactly what this passage is, is, is saying. And yet, that's the experience that we have as Christians. That's the marvel of God's sovereignty in working in our lives. That we respond to God, and in doing so, we reveal his choice of us. And that is of incredible comfort for us. And so, um, the sharing prompt today is you could share a reflection, okay? You can share a reflection about God's plan for righteousness by faith, which has been his plan from all along. And for some of you, that reflection might be, you know, you're kind of annoyed. <laughs> God operates that way because it's kind of unfair. It's actually kind of unfair that God operates based on faith because it's not about anything that you do. You can't actually be superior to anyone else. And for, if you're a competitive person as I am, I actually do want to feel superior to other people. But in the gospel, you can't do that. It actually doesn't work that way. You, there is no superiority because it's only because God chose you. Ultimately, it's because his choice of you and you respond based on faith. And so you can share a reflection about that. And so lastly, let me just close by saying this. Righteousness by faith is the greatest comfort of the Christian life. This is the greatest comfort and the greatest challenge is that we can become righteous because of how we respond to the promise of God and not of anything that we do. And I pray that you would receive that comfort today, and it's something that you can experience comfort for on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. As you pray and trust God, you get to experience the comfort that God has chosen you, and he wants you, and he loves you unconditionally. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your sovereign power, that that power operates because of your love for us. That you have given us freedom to choose and that we have responsibility for our decisions. And in that responsibility throughout history, we have chosen otherwise. We have chosen to go away from you. 
We've chosen to disobey. We've chosen ourselves. We've chosen pride. And yet, God, throughout salvation history, you have pursued your people and alternated between showing wrath, the consequences of our decisions, and showing mercy. And now, Lord, you have chosen to show mercy through your Son, to reveal a righteousness that has always been by faith to your chosen people, the Israelites, and now is also by faith for all of us who are not Israelites. And so thank you that we can be saved by grace and not by works. May we not fall to the stumbling stone and live by our behavior. May we instead find comfort in knowing that we have been chosen and that you reveal your mercy to us through your Son. We pray this in your name. Amen.